Welcome everyone to the Healing Place Podcast. I am your host, Terry Welbrock. Excited to have you here with us, listening in, and also excited to have another wonderful guest. I will be doing some introductions in just a moment, but just wanted to welcome you here first to this space filled with motivation and inspiration and healing stories. Welcome everybody to the Healing Place Podcast. I am your host, Terry Welbrock, and happy to have you here with me today. And I'm super happy to have Anna Runkle here, the crappy childhood fairy. Yay! I Thanks, love that. Terry. <laughs> so welcome. I like having the word crappy right there. <laughs> Right. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so phenomenal because it's one of those, you know, like you remember it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it came to me one day. Yeah. <laughs> can't find a better way to describe it. <laughs> right, right. Sadly, but true. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah, talk talk to us about what it is you do and, um, yeah, the crappy childhood fairy role. Well, so I, I grew up in a family that had a lot of alcoholism and and then it had a lot of the problems that, had, that come with alcoholism. We were very poor. We were on welfare. My mom was the main alcoholic. There were others. My older brother... Uh, I had uh, probably half the people in my whole family have serious alcoholism or drug addiction. And actually, the ones who did are, have died of it. So I'm not really at the effect of people actively drinking or using drugs anymore. I'm just at the effect of what happened to me as a kid. So I'm 55 years old right now. When I was 30, I was starting to really fall apart over this. I had some really good coping strategies early on. Uh, as a kid who I was the oldest daughter, I was really good at taking care of younger kids. I started a business when I was nine. By the time I was 15, I had five businesses. I was really industrial and industrious. I got perfect grades in my twenties. I was sort of running that like perfect accomplishment thing for a while. And I think this is not uncommon in my late twenties. It started to fall apart, mainly around my relationships with other people. You can only try to achieve stuff to a certain degree. It's not going to make you a wonderful friend or girlfriend. And I was starting to have a really dark, hard edge about me. It's very self-centered. It was really hard for me back then to hear other people or pay attention to them. And so in my blog, I've described this before. I drew a picture of it. And it's funny, I'm, I'm wearing headphones right now. But I say that when, when my childhood PTSD was in full bloom, it was as if I was wearing headphones with ACDC heavy metal blasting in my ears all the time and trying to pretend that nothing was happening. And I could barely hear what other people were saying. I was very out of touch with the emotional tenor of what was happening, hard for me to read emotions. And then I would, I would just have these huge reactions to things. I, uh, a friend of mine calls it my airplane, my airplane. <laughs> when I'm in a good, when my brain is regulated, I, my, my emotions are like an airplane. I, if something upsets me, it kind of comes up off the ground gradually. When my PTSD is unregulated, it's like my airplane just shoots up like the space shuttle into space. I just totally, I leave myself and have this intense reaction. And in that space, I'll say things I don't mean. And I'll get this intense urge that I have to resolve this thing right now. And so I've heard a lot of relationships that way. And I'm saying this as if it's going on right now. And I would just say that at this point, it's barely going on. I wouldn't say that I'm ever cured. 
or that everything's perfect, but through understanding that what I have is a neurological injury from neglect as a small child and some stuff that went on, it's mostly neurological. I come, I've come to think it's somewhat psychological. And then part of it is just being a person, you know, everybody's a little bit screwed up, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I've learned how to re-regulate my brain and it was until until I could understand how to do that, until I understand this is PTSD, it's not just your garden variety, uh, tough childhood. It's, I have, I have a problem staying regulated. I, once I learned that, once I, I, I realized that I had known all along how to re-regulate, but I hadn't put together when I feel like this, do this. Right. And I, th- I think all of us, like we do all like get dysregulated sometimes and we all know how to re-regulate, but we just don't always know how to do it as quickly and fully as we need to. Right. So when I learned that all of a sudden, like all, all the advice people had given me all my life, all the help therapists had tried to provide, it finally could reach me. And I was like, that's what they were saying. Because I used to sit in therapy offices and they'd be like, wow, that sounds sounds really bad and then what happened you were left in the snow and you were only six and that's terrible well then I would just like flood with emotion I would just become you know I've read the research right when we are having that PTSD reaction left frontal cortex goes dark right frontal cortex goes so it's very little reasoning lots of emotion that's what I was just going to say that whole left brain right brain separation thing happens and in there logically like there's a part of me that almost can hear the screaming of my logical brain saying, you know, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, but it, I can't hear it, you know, and I get what you're saying. Like, I can't hear that logical part. And it's just like, uh, what do you say? What? <laughs> yeah. It's some wise woman on a far shore. <laughs> yes. saying, can you hear me? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you're right. Like, right. Yeah. It's very intense. And I just remember the terrible pain of like, I'd have some sort of intense rage reaction at somebody. It would all seem very necessary and appropriate at the time. And then an hour later, I'd just go, what have I done? And I didn't have very good tools for what to do then. And, you know, part of, part of how I've recovered from childhood PTSD is learning how to apologize to people when I do overreact as quickly and as, but with as much emotional intelligence as I possibly can. So all of this stuff I had to learn. I kind of had to teach myself. I pieced it together from little pieces that other people taught me. But I just think, like, once you get this piece where you learn how to re-regulate, everything is possible. Yes. And now I walk around. I live in Berkeley, California. We have a lot of homeless people here. We have a lot of mentally ill people on the street, very visibly mentally ill. Yeah. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh. And I go up to people who are talking to themselves, and I say, hey, did you have a really rough childhood? And they're like, yes, honey, I I uh, am schizophrenic now, but what happened when I was a kid is the, and they tell me a story. I'm like, see? Yes. We, the, the code has been cracked. I don't think we've figured it all out yet, but we have, this is, we have cracked the code here of what is going on with so many of the problems we have. Right. I'm confident my intelligence has gone up. I was a very intelligent little kid. I felt like when the PTSD was on me, I used to feel like somebody who had you know, like a big cloud had come over my intelligence. I used to re- I used to remember being very sharp, and I wasn't. And I'm sharp again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is you were talking, and I had an alcoholic mother, uh, a violent father uh, for my first 10 years. My dad did end up getting therapy, and 
I remember him sitting me on his knee when I was 10 and apologizing and saying, I will never hit you again. I, you know, I hit you out of anger and, and he never did. But wow. yeah, and it was beautiful. It was a beautiful healing moment, but uh, with my mom and I, so I started my own cleaning business when I was 10 years old, cleaning apartments and we lived in an apartment complex. So you're talking and I was like, oh my gosh, I did the same thing. I was that straight A student, like the, I tried to be the perfect child. I was the oldest daughter. Um, so yeah, I get it. I get what you were saying because wow. um, we should have been friends. I know, right? We're friends now. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So yeah, well, I totally get it's it. It's funny as a little aside. So I went to I went to my high school reunion for the first time in 2011. It was my thirtieth reunion. I, I went to high school in Tucson, Arizona, and when I left I left high school a year early. I was such a good student. I graduated a year early, and then I got out of Dodge. I moved to San Francisco, and I never went back, and I didn't stay in touch with anybody, and then Facebook came, and right. you know, I, I started having some relationships again with the friends uh, of the time, and we got together for a reunion, and then I talked to my little circle of girlfriends, and it turned out we all had that going on, and we we never talked openly about it. We didn't realize that really about each other. We all thought we were the only one, but we all had at least one parent who was addicted or alcoholic right. uh, and or dead. Oh. It was a, and so everybody had had a hard time and then we caught up like, well, then what happened to you after high school? And all of us had had a, a tough road for a while. Right. Which and, is why that's so, so, so cool that ACEs is coming, the, yes. the, the knowledge about it. I mean, thank you, Oprah, for that interview and kind of bringing it into the mental health scene, but now it's you know going beyond the scope of the mental health scene. Um, and, and just making everyone aware of the impact of, of resilience building skills and, and helping children who are um, living in a difficult home, a difficult situation, and how we can help build resilience in that child um, and help educate the parents as to the impact they're having on the children. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And healing, yeah. healing parents and then who can then, you know, kind of stop the vicious cycle. So, yeah. Do you feel like, are you seeing progress in that? Cause quite honestly, I think, gosh, how on earth are you going to stop it from happening? Right. Could anybody have done anything about what happened to me? I don't know. Right. Yeah. And I, I do, I mean, I have hope for it in the, like I look at my story and all that, you know, I had gone through, but then I think, you know, people, I'll tell people my story and then they're like, how did you, how do you smile? How are you happy? Like, how do you radiate this joy? And then I think, oh, Grandma Kitty, you know, my grandma was such a loving, calming presence in my life. And so that resilience factor. Yes. And so again, what you were talking about, like we're just starting to get it as a society. And, and if we can more and more get it and make sure people are in children's lives that, that help them have that resilience. Okay, you're really inspiring me right now. <laughs> I had Grandma Ree and <laughs> and she picked me up every day after school and she knew what was going on in my house. Yeah. And I'm learning more about her history and she had kind of been through it too. And she lost her husband in 1941, which was a tough time. And she had, she had just had twins. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and she was so, she was widowed during the war with little baby twins and she was 40 years old and she was a social worker. I, she had a rough road. So she knew and she was the kindest, sweetest person and 
Actually, I was reminded of her really deeply when I saw the Mr. Rogers movie, Born to Be My Neighbor. Did you see that? I haven't seen it yet, but I, uh, I, I want to, yes. I say, so he was one of my angels, for sure. She, she would say, you don't need to watch TV, it's too frenetic. <laughs> I know you. You see this stuff that's really crazy on TV, and it gets you all amped up. I, I don't watch TV for that reason. Oh, I love TV. I yes. I, I'm a movie buff. I'm a buff. video maker. Yeah. Oh. Well. I love TV. I have no doubt it causes it. <laughs> but, you know, for kids, it's generally kind of a rough thing. But I, I'm as a, as a four- or five-year-old watching crazy, hectic cartoons where people are getting bonked over the head, well, my parents right. were beating the crap out of each other oh. at home. And so she, she just, I just remember her saying that, and now I'm putting it together. And I heard Fred Rogers in the, in the documentary saying, you know, kids don't need to see all this violence. I think it's very disturbing to them. A lot of them are going through a lot at home, and they need to just see. I remember the calming feeling of watching him. He'd come in the door. He'd shut the door. He'd walk down the stairs. He'd take off his sweater, and he'd hang up the sweater. He'd take out the shoes, he'd take off his current shoes, he'd put the new shoes on, put the shoes away. He'd go to the fishbowl. <laughs> it was re-regulating me. It was re-regulating me. I just loved that. I love somebody talking really quiet to me. And yes, so that quiet, I, that, that's a powerful yeah, part of it. Yes, yeah, yes. and in a, in a measured manner and loving me. She loved me so much. And yeah. that was, a. I, of course my parents loved me, but when they're not there for three months at a time, how do you know as a kid? So, so that is why, and, and I, I see now the hope of the whole movement is that if more of us could be those grandmas or those friends or aunties or neighbors, because also I'll tell you the moms, I had several childhood friends and their mothers yes. had their eye on me. They'd be like, how would you like to come stay at my house? I had a friend, we found each other on Facebook. She said, I said, did you know my mom was an alcoholic? We hadn't seen each other since we were six. Did you know that? And she said, yes, we knew. My mother and I, my mother told me about it later. You came to our house one night at three in the morning and you said that your dad had a knife and wouldn't let your mom out of the bathroom. Wow. Yeah. And I don't remember that. But at three in the morning, I went to their house, just went down the street about half a block. And they said, yeah, stay over here. And however they handled it, it all seems so fine that I don't even have a memory right. of it. Well, <laughs> so it was it just made it seem like everything's cool. We got you. Yeah, and it was it was your normal, so it, it yeah. probably just processed that way in your head. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Another right. mom taught me to knit. Took me to camp every year. Paid for it. We yeah. were really poor. Yeah. And uh, we weren't. My parents were educated. They they had owned a business, but because of what was going on, you know, they had sort of spiraled down to the bottom of the right the economic ladder, if not the socio ladder. So yeah. So yeah, they're, they're, these are people who helped me, and that there were uh, also great teachers uh, who saw what was going on back in the day. You couldn't do this now. School is so so um, legalistic, I guess. But I had a sister. I have a sister six years younger. And so when I was in third grade and she was a toddler, she would just come to school with me all day long. She'd go get lunch in the cafeteria with me, and the teachers were just like, oh, yeah, yeah, just. Wow. And they, yeah. just, they brought her in. People knew what was going on, and they looked out for us. And, and, and so, that was your, that's what I'm talking about, you know, having teachers, having coaches, having yeah. the more that we become aware of the impact, and 
and it can be the smallest of impacts. I remember my second grade teacher, Mrs. Corkin, and I could walk to her house, you know, here I was seven years old and it was a couple streets away, but I would walk to her house and just sit on her front porch with her. And to this day, I still have a little ceramic heart and how interesting that I find hearts everywhere. Like that's my thing. I find heart. I found a heart today on the sidewalk and took a picture. Wow. So a little ceramic heart and you know, it, it opens and it had, I had little knickknacks and stuff, but she gave that to me and it was a treasure. And it was so simple, but I knew she had my back. And I don't know, just very so powerful. There's, there's, there's some people who have a way of communicating it, because this is what I remember, and you may relate to this. I was so ashamed. Yeah. I didn't want people to know, and I didn't want to be acknowledged as a kid going through a hard thing. I was very ashamed. And on some level, starting at a young age, like I mentioned this, I was, when I was six, my mom, my mom would like, we would go to the casinos up in, Reno and Tahoe a lot and then she would say look I'm just going to go in for like 10 minutes so just wait here in this doorway in the doorway <laughs> and I'll be right back but you know she'd get, have a drink or something right and um, you know she had the disease of alcoholism it was completely out of her control what happened after that and so one time it was like 11 hours or she'd dump me in a movie theater or something wow yeah, yeah, and I was in I was in a movie. I saw The Sound of Music three times in a row, and that movie's like three and a half hours long. Right, right. And there's a half hour break between, and there's an intermission. Yeah, right. An I, intermission, didn't, I didn't have yeah. any money. I didn't have any food. And so couldn't eat popcorn, right? I had strep throat. It was oh you know, my I, goodness. I was like really neglected, and I wouldn't tell anybody because I was really afraid the cops were gonna. I just sort of knew like the police do something about this, don't they? And in those days, they didn't do as much as they do now. Right. And um, I've been involved in a family case where some kids were taken away from their parents for a while, and it's not like that's a perfect solution. I, I still would be terrified, I think, even though, you know, it's totally necessary and appropriate sometimes, but it was when that happened to the kids in my family, it was really devastating for everybody, the kids, the parents, and me trying to help out, and, and it, it there's just no good solution when that happens except so so what I want is what I'm getting at is those adults the teachers my grandmother the, the, the parents of other kids who were able to help me and in some way tell my heart that they understood and they had my back without tipping me off that I should be ashamed without I don't know that I, I remember all of those people communicating to me that, that they thought I was a great kid right Right. I was like, the, yeah, there was I'm, a, no, I'm a great kid. <laughs> yeah, there was no like that that judgment thing. You just didn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there yeah. are those there are those gentle people who just have a way of just loving you. Um, yeah, and yes. showing that respect. And I try to treat all kids with that respect too, and not just like, oh, you're not talk down to them. Yes, try to yeah. Pay attention to the the sort of eternal human being inside them. Yes, beautiful. And, and I love talk that. To them. Yes. So you've taken all this and you've turned it into this um, this business. I mean, in, <laughs> in the, the business of helping others. And yeah. so what is it that you, you have a course and you have a website and you do yeah. the videos? So I, you know, I have a day job. I have a video production company that's its own thing. Um, every once in a while, I use the wrong email address with the clients and they're like, crappy childhood fairy, what is that? Sorry. Do I tell them? <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's 
that's another thing. I was ashamed as a kid, and even in my 20s and 30s, I had a very compartmentalized life. I had the part of me that was dealing with the past and the part of the face I put on for work. And I'm pretty much like the same person now. Wherever you meet me, I, I don't have a compartmentalized life, and that's really nice thing, too. But um, I have wanted to write a book about the techniques that have started to help me. I, I, I never really had a frame for it until... I read Bessel van der Kolk's book. That book was the one that just sort of like opened my eyes right. to this is a neurological injury. And I was like, yes. I talk nice. about that's that book all the time. You're talking about the body keeps the score, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I've read a lot of other books, but that was the one that really like right. changed everything and finally spoke my language. And I, I just, people had been, I had had EMDR before that, and that was really helpful. So here's the thing, Terry. I had this stuff happen when I was a kid, but I was re-traumatizing myself over and over again. I was having the classic self-defeating behaviors. I've had a terrible pattern in the past, not now, luckily, yes. healed. I have a beautiful husband now, but I used to just really keep getting into relationships with people who were not going to treat me well or be there for me, whether it was because they were addicted married, didn't love me, period, uh, had major problems. It was just always like some terrible problematic thing. And I would have this ridiculous, okay, I'm not going to make fun of it. It's not ridiculous. It's neurological. My bonding mechanism would just sort of like occur, whether it was a somebody I liked or not. It would just, I would just get all bonded. And then I felt stuck in relationships have because you of the abandonment trigger I couldn't leave right and I just, been, I just oh. threw away so many years yes. I get it that abandonment thing is just it's it well I just recently discovered trauma bonding and the concept of trauma bonding and I'm so I'm starting to read of that and I'm like I mean again I was like oh my lord yes yes yeah, yes, like, yes it's yes, like my yes. kryptonite it's like it gets me <laughs> like, oh, I can't think I can't act right. I have no agency yes yes <laughs> So <laughs> that was, I, and so that's a big part. So my first course, so I was going to write a book and then I, uh, I just wrote this on ACES Connection today in response to somebody. I thought it would be a book. I've written self-help books in the past, but I remembered that with my PTSD, when it's active, I can't read books. I can read paragraphs or little things or I can listen to things, but I can't read a book. It's like way too much concentration for me. And I realized it needed to be a lot of little short bursts of information like a blog. And I realized videos were going to be good for people who take it in through their ears. And I started doing cartoons because I hate stuff that's really heavy. Like I read books that are like, and if you had this many adverse childhood experiences, your chances of autoimmune diseases go up 20%. And I'm like, I just get so bummed out. I, I can't really handle it. Right. So I started putting silly cartoons in there just kind of making fun of tragedy <laughs> and uh, I'm happy to say my drawings are starting to become a little better a little more legible and some people love the cartoons and some people are just like you know you should really get some drawing software <laughs> these are terrible <laughs> so I, I get it go well you know I have about four hours a week to post and so yeah. I just can't afford to be a great artist <laughs> right I'm a crappy artist and a crappy artist <laughs> It goes with the crappy childhood fairy, so yes, there you go. It does. I do what I, I do what I can, and it's just it's been so fun. So, so I have I I'm working on a series of courses, and the first one I've called 
healing childhood PTSD. It's about three and a half hours of video. There's a workbook. And I, about the first third of it is all about the science of ACEs. It's a very, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I'm just a person who's read a lot about it and tested out a lot of stuff. I'm talking about my own experience and summarizing it. And so I sort of go over what we know. And in real life, when I start talking to people about this, I'm sort of this like promotora. I try to educate people when they resonate with it and get them started and tell them what to read and send them to ACEs Connection. And then there's this, so now I have this course out there online. I have a blog. The blog, I've got like 60 posts about this. It's covered with videos and downloads and things. Sometimes I write about it. Sometimes I put a video out there about it. Just talking about the science, but then I also veer into sort of personal essays about what it was like to grow up poor, what it was like to have a hippie mom who had poor boundaries, some personal essays. And then I sort of have this like, I'm your teacher thing. And I, I, I teach techniques to, to re-regulate and I'm constantly, I'm on this drumbeat trying to encourage people to learn the tools that you can have all by yourself, whether or not you have access to professional help, whether or not you have access to a doctor who has any idea what you're talking about, whether or not your family is around you still doing this to you, or if you're free of it yet, you can have these tools. I teach these tools that will help re-regulate. A re-regulated person has choices. Yes, yes. So that's the key. Some people think that maybe I'm promoting too much pull you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and i i don't mean to say that anybody can ever live life alone in any way but but the tools in your pocket because i'll tell you recovering it does sometimes involve shedding a lot of the people you used to rely on yes and uh, until you find the new people yes but sometimes it just is you and your pencil and paper but there's an there's an empowerment to that and like if you scroll all the way down to the first page of my website there's a little kid in a superhero cape, you know, it was a figure that I, it was a photo that I picked from the stock photos of, because I wanted it to be about people learning to be their own hero. And that's what you're saying is that, you know, whether, you know, I went through EMDR therapy again, like we should be friends because we've, we've traveled a lot of the same journey and EMDR was life altering for me. However, it took so much more than just EMDR. It was learning and educating myself and reading everything I could get my hands on about brain plasticity and um, you know again the you know the body keeps the score and all of those books but then books like Brené Brown's you know The Gifts of Imperfection and I mean I just I was just flooding my head with all this information and then teaching myself meditation and going to yoga and taking nature walks and again teaching myself about it because there was an empowerment to that um, and so, yeah, I think it's beautiful what you're doing, teaching people that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, I, I just really want to express thanks and gratitude, both gratitude and respect to everybody out there who's teaching what they know, who's yeah. figuring things out and teaching what they know. This is, this really is a revolution in human consciousness. Right. And I see that I look, I look back, like I was looking at, there's that, I'm afraid I don't know what it is, but there's like a excavation in China where there's all these ceramic soldiers, like hundreds of these soldiers. Have you ever seen pictures I of did. I saw, it looks like, yeah, like, um, oh, like, like a trench and they're, yeah, yeah. They're, I, ter- Terry, they're marching. <laughs> Why do soldiers march? Because going left, right, left, right, together with other people regulates the brain.
refrain, which you really need after you've been in a battle, right? People have known things about this, singing together, marching together, dancing together. They, people have figured this out intuitively, even if we haven't had an MRI of what's happening, right. we use those tools. So for me, writing, the, the, big, the big tools for me were writing. I write my fears and resentments twice a day. I happened to learn this from a woman who was an AA. I'm not an AA. I'm not an alcoholic, luckily, just by the luck of the draw. But she said, when I was in great distress, she just said, do you want to see how I got sober? I'm like, yes, I'll do anything. And she showed me how to get my fears and resentments on paper. And as a result of the experience that I had when she showed that to me, I, I had a really strong spiritual experience. And I continue to be a spiritual person. And I try to teach this in a in different languages in a sense of like, if you're spiritual, right. you can ask God for help with this. And that's, that's how I do it. But it also, I'm also a very science oriented person. And scientifically, it also it totally holds up. Right. There, there's different languages or lenses you can look at this. So, and then there's the practical thing. And we're learning so much more about connection and how important that is, both for our neurology and for our physiology and for our psychology. And right. just for, just to be happy. You know, people are so lonely. I think loneliness is the terrible curse of the world. And, there was just, I just read a post recently on ACEs about that and it was, it was directed towards teachers and I shared it on, you know, my Facebook pages and social media and, and it, because it spoke to me so much and it was talking about the loneliness factor with children and the, how teachers can address it. Um, yeah. With kids. Yeah. And it's this great thing. Like if anybody's ever wondering, what can I do today to help the world? It's like, yes. just remember that everybody's lonely. Practically everybody's lonely. Like we go on Facebook and we focus so much on the people who are like, here I am with my avocado salad and all my beautiful friends. And you think, <laughs> I'm just sitting here on Saturday night with nothing to do. Right. It's so painful. Well, I'm somebody who loves to have potlucks. And part of that is I love to have my house. I have a family now. I have my own family. But I love filling up the house with people. I love being unlonely. I love reaching out to people who may be lonely. I go to Toastmasters. I'm working on my public speaking for the Crappy Childhood Fairy. I'm, that's one of my next steps is to be doing more public speaking. And my Toastmasters club, I'm like, everybody, potluck at my house. <laughs> We're going to have a potluck. We have movie parties. We do We do parties all the time. I have euchre clubs. I so get it. Yeah. 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 And everybody, like in Toastmasters, for instance, if anybody watching doesn't know Toastmasters, it's an international club for practicing public speaking. And everybody who goes there is trying to take a step up in their life. We have a woman who just moved to the United States from Iran because things were getting very rough over there for her and her family. We have uh, students who have never been able to get up and talk in front of people. We have 80-year-old women who are in charge of things at their church and they want to be more effective as speakers. Like There's every kind of person in our group and everybody's taking a step up and my heart just warms up having a potluck right. saying, let's go around the circle and tell us what you're working on <laughs> and it just feels so good and uh, 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 gosh don't tell my toastmasters group that i'm secretly so touchy feeling so <laughs> right. like, like people are going through a lot of trauma out there. right Right. And and we can uh, we can be that we can yes. be Grandma Ree. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not that old. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not a grandmother. I have teenagers. But... Right, right. 
So but, well, that leads but us I want to, to be like her. <laughs> the, the next question, which is, you know, who who is your target audience? Who who do you want your target audience to be? Well, it's interesting. So I thought women were my whole thing. Uh, I started so, and I didn't tell you. So my next course that's coming out in December, it's all about relationships and dating, and this is kind of my special subject that I've been holding back in my back pocket. I can't teach you about relationships till you learn how to re-regulate. Right. So my first course was about that. Now I'm coming out with the relationships class. And when I started posting about that, I had such a warm, enthusiastic reaction from the folks out there. And now I'm seeing the men show up. And I was like, that is so beautiful. I, I guess I had a bad idea about men just from my, you know, like having boyfriends in the past and thinking they don't care about me. Men totally care about relationships and they want to be better at them. And they are now half of the people who respond to wow. uh, everything that I put out. I'm really excited about that. So I've just kind of changed my vision about who this is for. So that said, uh, when I look at who looks at my stuff, they tend, it tends to be people who are between about 35 and 55. I think you have to be 35 to realize how bad you've been, maybe 30, I was 30, like you think that maybe if you just find the right person or you get the right job, life is going to fix you. That's obviously not true. Like some people know exactly what's going on quite young, but the audience gets a lot bigger about 30 when people have tried everything and they're still right. still looking. But then I I have people, I, I got a letter from an 88-year-old man in England last week, and he signed up for the course, Healing Childhood PTSD, and he wrote me a long email, very articulate, beautiful letter, saying how much this had touched him. It was the first time anybody had really seemed to understand how neurological it is. Yeah. And he, too, was sick of having it psychologized. Things like, you know, when people say, oh, you must really want to recreate your childhood, and I think, Yes, so, but I don't think so. Right. I think, I think I'm trying to create like a good life. Right. I don't I, want to I'm go not, back there. <laughs> I'm not crazy. Right. Right. It's just I keep finding myself having the same like bad crap happen over and over again, and I don't know why, but I'm not crazy. So he's he he felt hurt for the first time, and he said, "I just wish I had more time to change my life." So that was that was pretty cool. And That's then I've powerful. Got teachers. Yeah. I'm getting letter a lot of letters from teachers saying, "Could you adapt this for high school kids?" So that's that's Ooh, on my to do list yeah. too. Uh, it needs to be a little simpler and not so self-disclosing, I think. Uh, and I'm probably going to need to consult with people who can teach me about like how do you how do you present stuff to kids and what's a good format for that. But that's coming up next. And then the the, the third big course that I plan to do next year is all about working. I think relationships and work are a lot where people with childhood PTSD can get bungled up. Having a boss, having to deal with money, feeling thwarted, not getting the education that you really were capable of having, having too much ADHD type symptoms or depression to handle the education or the work experience. And so I think I can really help people with that. When I, right. when I first got techniques to re-regulate, even though I didn't know that's what it was called, I went from this very low paid job to all of a sudden I just said I should be in grad school and I got into grad school at UC Berkeley like within a year. It happened really fast. I just, I just, you know, my, my, my ability to, my presence of mind, my intelligence and my ability to act on my own behalf had just went up so exponentially when wow. I learned to regulate. Yeah. 
there was so much potential locked in there. And so from what I understand, something like 15% of the world, who knows about that, has childhood PTSD. Yeah. It's, it's hard to measure, but let's assume it's 15%. That's how many people have that much potential locked up inside them. Right. And maybe with all the problems we have in the world, we have a lot of good in the world, but with the problems, maybe it's those 15% of people's skills that would be just the thing to lift us up into something better. And that's how important it is that right. you are doing this, that the whole uh, ACES community is doing this. Everybody's coming at it with their special background and knowledge and experiences. It's so positive. It is. It is so positive and very beautiful. So what, um, any myths or facts that you want to clarify? I know you could probably, you've written a lot of blogs yeah. about that, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> As we know, like hardly anybody has enough access to professional help. 
Right. Even if you have great insurance, you what do you have? Ten visits. I, was I think say, in, the, right. in the UK right. they have sixteen visits. So, and that's let's let's just pretend for a minute that all professionals know exactly what this is and how to treat it. Well, they don't. This is an emerging science. There's some at the cutting edge, and there's some who have no freaking idea what it is. And you know, I had a doctor say that I said, "Hey, do you have any Aces informed doctors on staff?" And and she said, I can refer you to the domestic violence clinic. And it's like, yeah, that wasn't the question. No. <laughs> Do you know what ACEs are? <laughs> they know, like they've been trained, yeah. but it's really not, it's really not integrated. So at least they're getting trained. Like it's a start. Yes. It's a start, but it's not integrated. And really we can't demand that everybody completely understand all things in the whole world. Some people are going to specialize. So anyway, the myth is that this all has to be through professionals. What we now know and this is something I feel strongly about is we can get a lot of recovery with techniques that we can just keep with us at all times. Pen and paper are my core tools. So even when I can't get help from another person or a friend, uh, when I have to duck into the bathroom at a social event where I'm freaking out, I can go start writing my fears and resentments in the bathroom, wherever I am. I can do it in a business meeting if I must. Now everybody's going to see this, and they're right. going to wonder what I'm doing when I'm writing. <laughs> what but is what she I, writing? <laughs> what, I, this, what I look like when I'm treating my PTSD is like this, like I'm taking notes. Cool, yeah. right? You yeah. know, it's very, very subtle, very private, and I'm getting that fear and resentment out, and, and it works for me. So we now know that independently, all by ourselves, we can be our own hero. As you said, you have the little superhero. Yes. And... Um, but yeah, to be clear, I really think we're born into community. We can never escape community. And of course, the love and connection is what makes everything possible. And that the childhood PTSD is an injury to our ability to connect. I mean, that's what it is. Right. That's what it is on a lot of levels. So, so connection is important, but we do have independent tools we can use. And then the fourth, the fourth thing that's a myth is that I won't even try to articulate the myth. It's so complex. I'm just going to tell you tell you what we now know, and I'm also going to say this is a lot of my personal advocacy. We get this brain injury, we get dysregulated, and from that dysregulation flow all kinds of self-defeating behaviors. And I think we have a hard time talking about that. The professionals don't want to talk about it because it sounds like blaming the victim. Right. And those of us who suffer with childhood PTSD may not be ready to talk about it. And especially if we are not feeling hopeful that we have any power to change this, it's shameful and we don't talk about it. But there's a lot of behavioral stuff that comes from the from childhood PTSD. I used to be a heavy smoker, for example. You know, I used to have these sick relationships. I've had complete craziness eating sugar. By the luck of the draw, it hasn't been drugs and alcohol for me. Uh, it hasn't been it hasn't been ADD per se but it's been these huge emotional reactions. So I have some, I had my kids, I, I, I had children with somebody I, I wasn't married to. We sort of got married and we got divorced after 18 months. So I raised my kids as a single mom and you know, we made the best of it. My kids are wonderful, but I, that whole part of my life was very much driven by my trauma and my holding onto a relationship that wasn't very good. Um, it's a complicated story because I just like I'm really grateful for the kids. Yes. <laughs> and I'm friends, I'm friends right. with my ex as well. <laughs> I run but, a business with my ex, so it's okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, things things have a way of working out, but but that was a very trauma driven decision yeah. to have kids with that guy at that time, and 
So I'm not putting myself above anybody, but I just see um, a lot of what we have going on, a lot of the, uh, you know, something, here's something people don't talk about. I worked in reproductive health care for many years, and there's just kind of this strange phenomenon where some people tend to have a lot of unintended pregnancies and some people don't. Why is that? And they used to just sort of say, oh, well, they're just like non-compliant or they're not getting enough education. But we now know, like, actually trauma plays a huge role. Like, you can have all the education and great birth control in the world, but if, you, if you're at the effect of your past trauma you're, and your left frontal cortex shuts down around sex, well, using birth control can be really difficult. Or saying no. Saying yes. no can be impossible. Right. Right. Boundaries. So, it's the boundaries part of it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so I feel like there's a lot of uh, conversations and work and personal development out there kind of waiting to happen when we can be more honest about this stuff because we're not afraid that we're victim blaming or or trying to paint social problems as like, oh, you see, uh, it's all their fault. And I don't know, you know, we're, we're also afraid we're going to screw it up. Right. There's some stuff we're not talking about yet. And that's why as the crappy childhood fairy, I like to sort of stay on the fringes and I talk about it in my relationship course. I'm going to talk about those decisions about having sex and birth control. I'm going to talk about it. I don't have to, um, you know, I'm not the employee of something and I don't have to be licensed and right. uh, I can shoot from the hip a little bit and just say, this is my experience. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so one of my favorite questions I love to ask people since we're, we're running to the end here and is, and I told somebody the other day, I said, I wanted to compile a book when I, when I, you know, like this is podcast 48, I think. And um, I love the answers I get on this. So if you could meet anyone dead or alive who could help you with your journey, with your mission, who would it be? This would be a weird answer. Laura Ingalls Wilder. All right. That's not a weird answer. <laughs> I probably, I, I, I have 20 people I could pick, but Laura Ingalls Wilder was this profound influence on me as a kid. And her family was in this, they were in these really terrible straits and they stuck together. And I lived in a fantasy world that I lived in there. I was an Ingalls. I was the fifth Ingalls daughter. Right. <laughs> and I was, I would... I built, this is before you could get these dresses. I would make them with scotch tape and fabric, you know, that I got at a thrift store and stapler. And for shoes like Laura, I, I got ice skates and took the blades off and walked around. Oh, they the had a very rigid bottom. You clump around like Frankenstein. Yeah. And I had a bonnet. And uh, what I got from that, Laura Ingalls Wilder is this beautiful poet of going within to find that natural strength that we all have. And her family taught it to her, but then she had to sort of draw it out of herself. And I recently read the great biography of her by Carolyn. I can't remember her last name. I want to get that right. Anyway, you can take this out. But No, that's fine. I read this beautiful biography of her that was one of the best books I ever read about how she carried on with her life. And, you know, their, their situation was really traumatic. The family was strong. And by writing about it so beautifully. You know, when you write about something and you put it out there, it becomes timeless and other people can access it and receive it. And so when you're doing this blog and I'm writing on my blog and I don't know, I don't know if I can come up to the standard of, of her. I, I, she, I don't know. She was just like this ordinary person and 
something happened where she wrote these this incredible series of this literature. And there's, do you know they used it in Japan after after World War II? She became a national hero of Japan, and the government distributed it to kids to help them understand the experience of oh, hardship and carrying yeah. on. Wow. And yeah, and this was you know in people who had been directly affected by the atomic bombs. You can imagine how traumatized these kids were, and these were the books that the government shared with them to say, you can carry on. And she had this strange Japanese fan base of people who were like, so you do understand what I went through. Yeah. And when I read that, I was like, me too. That's Mr. Rogers or Eagles <laughs> Wilder. There were people, there were people who kind of had my back like across time. Yeah, so but, these, I but probably... I, what I see from those two examples is just very gentle just calm calming nature kind of people yeah how beautiful making the butter yeah, right taking the shoes taking the sweater yeah. off hanging the sweater up yeah yeah beautiful yep Twisting all right <laughs> yes all right well thank you for having me terry it's been oh so fun talking gosh. to you yes it's been absolutely beautiful i did have one more question which is what is your dream job and are you doing it yeah, I'm doing it. I wish it were my full-time job, actually. I, I love making videos. It's very creative and it pays, and that's good. The crappy childhood very pays for itself. Right. Yes. <laughs> There's a small amount of revenue that pays the expenses, and that's very nice. But my dream my dream job is to be able to do more of this, and I want to be out there speaking more about yes. it and reaching an audience and um, having more contact contact with the people who are experts in their fields doing this so that we can bring this to people faster yeah. and more completely. I really think there's a lot of human potential. And all my life I craved to do something that was meaningful. And and I feel like in the last couple of years, oh, I, for found sure. it. I found it. So the, as much as I can, I want to keep going. Yeah, well, keep it up because, again, I, I love what you do. I love your cartoons, your drawings. I love, I, love the way, I love the way you write. And I think I've responded to you before we had connected this way, you know, via the podcast. Um, you know, to some of the things you've written, at least, and shared on ACES Connection, because it's just, I love, because I write this way, that raw, real kind of writing. Um, there's just, I, I just connect to it. And I think mm -hmm. that's probably what attracts people to you, um, mm -hmm. is you're just, you're just real, and it's raw and beautiful, so. Yeah. <laughs> In the age of social media trolls, it was a big step to decide to put my real self out there. And I will say, I do get hate mail from time to time, but I get so much love mail. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> See you later, haters. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love but, it. Yeah. Well, again, thank you. Thank you for what you do. So how can people get in touch with you? Where can they find you? You can come to crappychildhoodfairy.com, and you can find all the resources there, the class. There's a quiz there about childhood PTSD and a whole bunch of posts and videos about the stuff I think about. And you know what I wish people would do is write to me more often. Okay. <laughs> Comment on things, send me emails. I just, I love hearing from people. Let me know what you think and what you're doing. So, okay, yeah. very cool. Well, again, thank you. I'm going to do a little sign out here. Everybody, thank you for joining us today. And until next time, remember to be gentle with yourselves. Bye, Terry. Bye-bye.